Well, thank you, team, for leading us. The Lord is calling us to the cross, and that is more or less the theme of 1 Corinthians. And I would like you to, I would like to ask you to turn then to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 9, as we begin our study. I appreciate Rick's um, retrospective, his flashback to last year. Um, and as we, uh, this, is, this announcement is for the kids and the kids at heart. Um, for that kickoff Sunday, kids, we will have a bouncy castle. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I, I actually am small enough to fit in it. <laughs> but I guess I'm not going on. The kids can have it. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, I had forgotten that it has been a year since I first started to crest, uh, started talking to the search committee with Crestwick, uh, of Crestwick and um, just being excited and intrigued by the possibilities of coming to Crestwick. And then a year later, um, being here. And it has been uh, a privilege to be your pastor it has been a joy getting to know all of you. I know I don't know all of you yet the way I'd like to, but all in good time uh, as, the, as time goes by. So, part of our growth into becoming the kind of church God wants us to be is indeed responding to Christ's call to the cross. And that is, as I said, the theme of 1 Corinthians now, you might wonder, well, didn't these believers already, I mean, they're, they're already believers, they're already a church. Why do they need to be called to the cross? Well, let's take a bird's eye view of the church of Corinth to understand why they needed to be called to the cross. According to David Pryor, it was a large church. Many Corinthians were converted to Christ. It was full of cliques each following a different personality. Many Christians were very snobbish. At fellowship meals, the rich kept to themselves and the poor were left alone. There was very little church discipline. A lot of laxity was allowed, both in morals and in doctrine, an all-too-common combination. They were unwilling to submit to authority of any kind, and the integrity of Paul's own apostleship was frequently questioned. There was a distinct lack of humility and of consideration for others, some being prepared to take fellow Christians to court and others celebrating their newfound freedom in Christ without the slightest regard for the less robust consciences of fellow believers. In general, they were very keen on the more dramatic gifts of the Spirit and were short on love rooted in the truth. Now, Hear me well. I am not saying that Crestwick is Corinth. <laughs> the reason we're studying this book is that Paul consistently addresses the problems of the Corinthian church by pointing them to Christ and the gospel. So 1 Corinthians shows us how the gospel shapes every aspect of life. And that's why we're studying it. My hope is that our study would 
help us become more Christ-centered, gospel-shaped kingdom disciples as the message of 1 Corinthians, first of all, exposes our sin and transforms our desires, our standards, and our values. And this is very helpful for us because Paul doesn't just point us to the cross as individuals. Paul paints a picture of what a church should look like as God's temple in Corinth. And when we say God's temple, we mean that it is God's challenge and alternative to the pagan temples of the city. And in the same way, 1 Corinthians helps us to imagine what God intends us to be as a church as we embrace our identity in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul begins 1 Corinthians with a, a glowing description of a messy church, a description that almost wants you, makes you want to join the membership of, First Corinthians, of, of the Corinthian church. So let's read the text. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you will note that Paul begins by encouraging the church that they belong to God. Look at verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth. They are the church of God. He possesses them. He owns them. They belong to him. And the reason why they belong to him is that they have been set apart for him in Christ, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. He wants them and us to remember that our faith union with Christ changes and redefines our status and identity. The gospel has transformed nobles, freedmen, and slaves and turned them into brothers with a common inheritance in Jesus. That's the wonder and privilege of being a believer. Class distinctions are erased. Status is gone. We are in Christ level at the foot of the cross. 
problem was, as we talked about last week, the Corinthian believers were perverting the Lord's Supper by acting selfishly because they were acting according to the class-conscious norms of Greco-Roman society. Instead of living out the equality and mutual love and care of the gospel. They were still held captive by the cultural narrative of Corinth. So Paul had to remind them of their real identity. So let's describe that cultural narrative in Corinth. According to Stephen Um, Corinth was an aspirational city. Its citizens were looking to advance on the ladder of upward social mobility. And they did this by aspiring to affluence for the sake of establishing their own honor. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Alongside the clamoring for affluence and honor, Corinth was also an explorational city. It was a city that contained a variety of religious faith communities so that the everyday Corinthian had any number of potential options when thinking about which religion or belief system might fit him best. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. The merchant who made his gain by all and every means. The man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust. The athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. In a city that measured one's honor by the importance of the patron and friends to which a person was attached, we'll talk about that next week, to be set apart by God would have been the ultimate reassurance of one's identity. And I think we recognize that we face a similar challenge in our individualistic culture. And it is so easy to fall into the trap of seeking material affluence, social acceptance, and self-gratification. And such pursuits leave us frazzled, insecure, and worn out. And that's why we're studying 1 Corinthians. We need to embrace the comfort of belonging to God and being accepted in Christ as the objects of His unfailing love set apart for His purposes. See, Paul is telling this group of aspirational and explorational people, guys, you don't have to bear the burden of constructing your own identity and establishing your own worth. See, God is the author of our story. He is in control. We belong to Him. And as we lean into His good and wise purposes, we flourish. We become what God intends us to be. But you and I know it is a struggle daily, isn't it? Because we are bombarded with competing narratives in media, in our conversations with friends, in the way our workplace is structured. These, the, the individualistic desire for advancement and for status just 
presses in on us and influences us. And that's why we gather in order to hear the gospel narrative in community to refresh and reorient us. And the other side of it is that we struggle with belonging to God because it's contrary to our sinful inclination, isn't it? It challenges our desire for autonomy, a desire that we have had ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden. But it also is contrary for our de- to our desire for self-gratification. You see, Paul points out that to be sanctified in Jesus Christ is to be called, verse 2, to be His holy people. The interesting thing about this is that holy and sanctified are actually the same word. So that the emphasis here is that we are set apart to reflect the character of our God to whom we belong. And Paul makes that point because the Corinthian believers struggled with sexual impurity and idolatry, which describes many of us. We, too, live in an oversexed world, oversexed world, and our hearts are factories of idols. And that's why we need this text. And like us, the Corinthian believers struggled with pride. That's why he emphasizes their solidarity with other believers. Notice how he describes them. Called to be his holy people, we're still in verse 2, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. He is reminding them, yes, you're special in God's sight, but you're no better than other believers. Get over yourselves, guys. He bursts the bubble of their overinflated self-importance by telling them, we are all debtors to God's grace. That's why verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling them, we enjoy peace with God only because of Christ who gave himself for us. Our achievements and accomplishments do not, cannot make us acceptable to God. The only reason why you and I are accepted is that, because, is that God loved us from eternity, chose us for salvation. Christ purchased us by dying on the cross for us, and His Spirit brought us to faith in Him so that we have nothing of ourselves, of which to boast. In fact, everything that we have is the fruit of God's grace in Christ. We see that as Paul moves on to, from the greeting to the thanksgiving. He says, I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. He gives thanks to God for the giftedness of the Corinthian believers. And in giving thanks to God, He is orienting the Corinthians away from themselves to God. And His thanksgiving to God points to their dependence upon God. 
You notice, I thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ. He is reminding them, guys, you are fundamentally dependent creatures, just like us. Apart from God's grace, in Christ, we really have nothing. And so he emphasizes then, having pointed to their need and dependence, he points out that that need and dependence has been abundantly met by the riches of Christ. Verse, four, verse 5, in him you have been enriched in every way. And then verse 7, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. He's saying, look, you are needy and dependent. God has been absolutely, abundantly gracious towards you. He's given you everything you need. And he highlights here the gifts of speech and wisdom. Because these were the gifts that rocked the Corinthian world. These were the ones that the Corinthians highly prized. But in the same breath, he is also careful to make clear that they received this, these gifts from God, not because of their merit, but as confirmation of the gospel. Look at verse 6. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. The fact that the church possessed these gifts of speech and knowledge validated Paul's message as true and confirmed his being an apostle sent by Jesus by the will of God. Now, sadly, Paul has to emphasize that they had received these gifts from God because they had been misusing these gifts. God had given them these gifts so that they could serve others. But instead of being humbled by the grace of God, they were using their gifts to assort their superiority over others. And they started fighting about who's got the better gift. And frankly, it's a sad reminder of our own tendency to forget that we are stewards of God's gifts. In our self-centeredness, we forget our own responsibility to God to use His gifts wisely. Instead, we use our gifts for our self-gratification. And I have to say, I, I know that temptation. I struggle with that temptation. You know, Rick reminded me of us, of, of having this interview with Crestwick. And I remember coming away from that first interview thinking, wow, what an awesome church. It would be interesting to be there. My initial response when a friend of mine told me, what about Crestwick, was, dude, they got Steve West, and then Stan Fowler was their interim. Them folks be geeks and nerds. <laughs> I don't know if I fit there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to be frank, there was a deeper concern for me because I know that I also am a geek and a nerd. And I thought, this will make me worse. <laughs> <laughs> 
And being, and the bigger challenge is this. Going to a church that is known in the fellowship, that is visible and carries a lot of prestige because of its history, will feed my ego. And I am tempted to use Crestwick as a platform to raise my profile and polish my resume. And at the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is going to be a struggle for me. This is going to be a temptation to make the church about me, not about Jesus. And so I have to resist that. I have to keep reminding myself, that's not why I'm here. That's not why God called me here. He put me here to serve you, to care for your souls. That is God's gift to me for my good. And I ask you to pray for me. Because as I look around, it is a temptation to be like those colleagues that I had in Jamaica who were boasting about their members as if they had saved their members. And I have to remind myself, first of all, RJ, you're punching above your, your weight class. And second, Jesus saved these people, not you. And they're not here because of you. They're here because of Jesus. But that is the, the sinfulness of our heart, isn't it? That we take the good gifts of God and we make it about us. And that's why we need 1 Corinthians to call us to the cross, to humble us, and we rem remind us that all we have is because of Jesus. So then the question arises, well, okay, if the Corinthians were so messed up, why would he be so affirming of these Corinthian believers? Why does he thank God for them? Wouldn't you say, I wish I didn't want to talk to you? <laughs> well, look at how Paul describes the church in verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. See, Paul sees the church as it is in Christ, who is our righteousness. Certainly, the Corinthians are far from what God intends them to be, but they are still accepted by God because of Jesus Christ. And that's why you will note if you take the time to count the number of times Christ is mentioned in verses 1 to 9, you will see that he is mentioned nine times in the passage. He is driving the Corinthians to Christ by that rhetorical strategy of repetition. And he can be affirming of the Corinthians because he knows Christ is transforming them by his Spirit because he has experienced God's transforming work himself. Remember Paul's history. He was a Jesus hater. He persecuted Christians because he considered a crucified Messiah to be scandalous nonsense. But God changed his heart. 
and didn't just make him a believer. He made him apostle, an apostle of Jesus. That is God's grace at work. And so Paul knows that God is determined to make his people look like Jesus. That's why in verse 7, Paul orients them to the return of Jesus Christ. He is telling them, guys, as gifted as you are, you are still in process. And God is not going to be finished until Christ returns. It is not until Christ is revealed that they will be like him. Same is true for us. And that's why we can never allow ourselves to get complacent. We will never be finished products until Christ returns. And that's why he tells us in verse 8, He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's comforting them, but he is also challenging their self-sufficiency. He is reminding them, if you think you can handle the Christian life on your own, get real. You can't do it on your own. You are not enough. None of us are. Our hope is that God keeps us firm to the end. And that is the hope that motivates us to make every effort to grow. It is an expression of our confidence that is expressed in verse 9. God is faithful. And because God is faithful, He is not going to give up on the Corinthian believers even when they misuse His good gifts. And thankfully, He will never give up on you and me either. And Paul's words then allow us to acknowledge her imperfections. And let's use the right term, to acknowledge our sinfulness. Because we know our God is faithful. He's not going to give up on us. In In the first place, He knows the worst about us already. And yet, He still chose to save us. But we also know that God loves us unconditionally, yes, but also loves us too much to leave us the way we are. So that the faithfulness of God also gives us hope for transformation. We don't have to stay the way we are. If God called us to be His holy people, then He will continue His good work to make us like Jesus. He will keep us firm to the end so that we will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. He wants to grow us. He wants to transform us. And He is enabling us to persevere to the end. Our theological acumen, our apologetic strategies, our cultural awareness, our personal piety are good gifts from God. But apart from the Spirit of God working through these means, they are not enough to keep us from going astray. Verse 8, God will keep us firm to the end. 
And the covenant fidelity of God doesn't just give us comfort for our personal growth. It also gives us the courage and ability to engage our society with the hope of the gospel. Our faithful God, who will keep us firm to the end, is still working out His purposes for our good, and He is committed to giving us what we need to serve His purposes. We are not alone. We may be small in the eyes of the world. We may be insignificant in the eyes of the world. I think, you know, looking back to the last couple of years, that was part of the angst that drove some of the pastors I was with when we had a Zoom call with um, one of the provincial MPPs, and they started complaining, whining about, why are we not being considered by the government? It was that pain of realizing that in the world, in the eyes of society, we are insignificant. But then, two years later, I realized it's all good. It's good to know you're insignificant in people's eyes. Because it's not about us. Our God is faithful. We don't need to bemoan our insignificance. We don't need to fear men's opposition. Our God is faithful. What He gives us to do, what He calls us to accomplish, we don't accomplish on our own. He's the one who does the work. We're just His means. And so that also implies that we should not be apprehensive about becoming like the Corinthians who struggled with what it meant to be in the world but not of it. See, the problem of the Corinthians in part was that they embraced the standards of their culture and disregarded the gospel. In our day, our culture's deviation from biblical standards is right up in our faces. And so the temptation for all of us is to withdraw. Well, some of us get angry and confrontational. Some of us, perhaps many of us, are tempted to withdraw into a bubble for self-preservation. And I submit that both approaches are the wrong approach. Because we are called to be the church of God in Guam. Not the only church, but to be God's representatives here in Guelph. To be a city on a hill. We happen to be on a hill. <laughs> Proclaiming the excellencies of God by lives of luminous goodness engaging our city. And the problem isn't the culture. The problem isn't the hostility of society. The problem is that we often try to fulfill our calling on our own terms. When we withdraw in fear or confront in anger, that's our egos getting in the way of our calling. We are doing it apart from Christ. And that's why we read Psalm 127. Apart from Christ, our efforts are in vain. And that is why the Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write 1 Corinthians. 
He is calling us to the cross. He's calling us to be a cruciform church, a church that is centered on Jesus Christ and shaped by the message of Christ crucified. And that's why Paul says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are united with Christ through faith. We will observe the Lord's table, reminding ourselves that our sustenance is from Jesus. We live out of our communion with him. And the only way we can fulfill our calling in this city to be God's alternative temple in Guelph is as we stay in close fellowship with him. In fact, the paradox of it is this. God sends us out so that we may realize how much we need him and so draw us closer to himself. We are sent out to know that Christ is our strength, our all. He's all we have. And he's all we need. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that in the midst of our foolishness, our forgetfulness, despite our frequent failures, yet you remain faithful. I thank you, Father, for the giftedness of this church, for the many abilities and the brilliant intellects that we see represented here. And we recognize that these are all your gifts. We don't deserve them. You have graciously granted them to us. And so we thank you. We rejoice in your abundant provision. But we also recognize that you give us these gifts so that we may glorify your name by serving your purposes. So, Father, we ask, help each one of us to seek your face. First of all, to acknowledge and rejoice in how you have gifted each one of us. And then in gratitude, help us to put our gifts at the disposal of our Lord, who gave them to us, to have serious conversations with you about how you want us to use these gifts and how you want us as a church to work together to proclaim the gospel, to be that city on a hill that the church is supposed to be. Father, thank you, for you are our faithful God. You have called us to be your people. May we delight in you so that we may proclaim your excellencies and rejoice in your goodness and greatness. 
so that we may make you known and know you more. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand as we sing in response.